I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in our series, The Death of Christian Art. Okay, so God creates and commands and cares about art, but what kind of art does God care about? Uh, Years ago, this is a lot of years ago now, I got into it with a family member in a Best Buy aisle. Uh, I used to frequent that place, Best Buy, um, because once upon a time, before the normalization of Amazon Prime, it was arguably the best place to shop for movies. Uh, My wife, this is a side note, my wife Abby puts the accent on best instead of buy, which really weirds me out. She says best buy instead of best buy. No, that's incorrect, Lexham. (laughs) Whatever. Best Buy? Best Buy. Anyway, once upon a time in a pre-Blu-ray era, I used to blow whatever disposable income I might have, which was never very much, on DVDs. And, you know, they looked terrible, but I didn't know any better back then. Ignorance was bliss. So there I was, circa early 2000s or something, maybe mid-2000s, and I was picking up, I remember specifically, a, a new special edition of the 1968 George Romero film, Night of the Living Dead. And because of the title and the movie cover, this older family member, knowing nothing else about the movie except for the title and the movie color, uh, cover, questioned my moral judgment. She said, how can you watch that stuff? Just look at it. So I looked down at the DVD case. I said, what about it? And that's when they hit me with the Apostle Paul. Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things right there in the Best Buy aisle, right there in Best Buy, (laughs) in Best Buy. What could I say? That was checkmate, end of discussion. I had to put that thing back on the shelf, go home and do some serious repenting. No, I didn't, man. I was watching that movie a half hour after that conversation. That DVD was 50% off. It had new commentary tracks, the whole thing. What was I going to do, not buy it? Because she quoted Philippians. Anyway, the conversation did get to me. Uh, It wasn't the first time someone had brought out the whatever is true and noble passage to dunk on some movie or album or book. Heck, I've been whatever is true and nobled over everything from The Simpsons to Nine Inch Nails. Night of the Living Dead is a drop in the bucket at this point. But I am a Christian. I teach Bible and theology as my job, man. I went to school for this. I take it pretty seriously. Spend tons of time begging people to take the Bible seriously. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. So as a Christian, I'm not embarrassed to say, not embarrassed at all to say, that I like all kinds of art that one might describe, at least colloquially, as Christian You know, if you read this new thing I wrote, I keep bringing up Amy Grant for some reason. Uh, I've got heart in motion on vinyl, man. I I was playing that thing this morning. That's right. Even so, long before I was uh, lame and pretentious enough to do it for a reaction, I did find myself often drawn to art and entertainment that might make a well-meaning family member dust off the old whatever is true and noble passage. I was hearing it all the way back in, I was trying to think of when's the first time I heard that used against art and entertainment, and it was back in 1991 against the Ren and Stimpy show, which begs the question, were they onto something? 
Or was I just, you know, unwilling to hear it in my immaturity, unwilling to give up my DVDs or farting cartoon characters or whatever it might be? I know enough to know that in a room like this, there are sensitive souls who might think their fragile sensibilities under attack if they had to sit through some kind of transgressive French horror movie or something. And, and I know some of you wouldn't bat an eye. Not an eye. Shame, Le Lexi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, uh, maybe some of you know why that is, why you would be terrified or why you wouldn't be terrified at all, but maybe some of you in either demographic haven't really thought a lot about it one way or another. You just know the way you feel and you don't really think about why, but we should, all of us. And that's why we're in a four-week series called The Death of Christian Art. I have this new book that came out uh, when it was snowing. And, oh, yeah, thanks. That's very nice. Oh, wow. Yes, I guess I did ask for that feedback, so thank you. Thanks very much. Um, we do have copies at the bookstore after the gathering. We're selling them at cost, seven bucks. I don't profit. Van City doesn't profit. We just would like people to read it if you're so inclined. Um, quite a while back, I was talking to one of our overseers of seven-plus years now, old Scott Barguer. You may know him as the curly mustache man. And I'm... I told him, you know, I got this book coming out about art and the Bible and how we should understand things like obscene art, and it's a whole thing. And, but I said, you know, I don't have to do anything about it at church. I don't want to impose my hobby horse on everyone. And he said, no, we should be talking about that at church. And I was like, hey, you're right, Scott. So here we are. He was right, because art clearly matters to God. He made it up all throughout the Bible. He creates art. He commissions art. He commands art. I went into this in great detail two weeks back before we were snowed out. If you weren't here, go back and catch them on the podcast if you haven't already. The point that I made then and will make again now is that art matters to God and it has mattered deeply to Christians for hundreds of years of the Jesus movement and how we understand God, how we understand the scriptures, and in how we practice our discipleship to Jesus. But even if you wrap your mind around that one, many of us would probably still disagree, at least on some level, about what kind of art matters to God and what kind of art honors God. What does he like? So, tonight, there's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to take an interesting tour of certain artistic motifs in the Bible. Basically, all the R-rated content the Bible has to offer at least in summary, because it would take weeks and weeks and weeks to get through it. But it's not just for our amusement. We're going somewhere. So before we start the whole trek through the Bible, we need to establish something, and that is, what is art? Now, I'll let you guys in on something. If you take a couple of years to study that question, you read stacks of books on art history and art criticism and consult academics and theologians, you'll find out, like I did, they mostly don't agree on an answer at all. So part of what I've attempted to do in this whole book and throughout this series is split the difference of these definitions and simplify the intricacies. But more than that, I want to define art the way God seems to understand it as depicted throughout the scriptures. So here it is. When God or people make things that communicate ideas, emotions, or craftsmanship, that's art. Now notice that definition doesn't include anything qualitative. doesn't say anything about how good something has to be to be considered art because that's subjective and it'll vary from person to person. And it doesn't comment on any moral or philosophical value necessary to qualify any given thing as art. Art. Now, you guys in Van City communities, if you had a chance to meet uh, after our first Sunday in the series before the snowstorm, 
you might have noticed that Cam sort of included this trick question in the practice, what's the difference between art and entertainment? That wasn't to make anyone feel dumb, I don't think anyway, you never know with that guy. Um, but it's because a lot of us haven't really wondered if there is a difference. But if you look at this definition, then I would argue that the majority of what we typically call entertainment probably qualifies also as art, but there is art that probably wouldn't be described as entertainment. And the reason is that the dictionary definition of entertainment is, and I quote, the action of being provided with amusement and enjoyment. Some art, I think, isn't meant to amuse you. Some art we don't enjoy at all in the traditional sense. You don't leave the theater after screening, you know, Schindler's List and say, amusing, you know, I enjoyed every minute. I was amused, weren't you amused? You know, that kind of thing. Um, before Abby and I had kids, our Christmas tradition was that at the end of the evening, we'd go see a, a movie on Christmas night. I know lots of people do this. Uh, a late movie to kind of wrap up the day's festivities. It's a popular tradition because uh, the movies were always crowded or sold out on Christmas, no matter what we saw. I know for sure because uh, on Christmas night, I looked it up, 2010, we drove up from Guyton, Georgia to Savannah, Georgia to see the Darren Aronofsky film Black Swan, which was sold out on Christmas night. Um, but we got in and it was a hilarious Christmas night screening because first it was like a technical mishap and the movie didn't start on time. I'm sure you movie frequenters, you've had some kind of technical difficulty, especially if you go down to that AMC that's practically fallen apart in the mall. But anyway, we were packed into this uh, theater, staring at this frozen screen, wondering why the movie wasn't started, and some woman shouted out, see, this is why I hate Savannah. This would never happen in Orlando, just like that. <laughs> that lady doesn't know it, but Abby and I quote her all the time to this very day. Anytime anything goes wrong, see, this is why I hate Vancouver. This would never happen in Orlando, whatever. But then the movie finally got going, and uh, if you know anything about this movie, you know it's a wild ride. Not for the faint of heart, let's say. People got up and were leaving the theater. Not on Christmas, they said to themselves. They were walking out of the theater being, whatever's true, whatever's noble, you know. <laughs> I'm assuming they were saying that to themselves. But, but, Black Swan was and is celebrated as a great work of art, nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Natalie Portman won for Best Actress. I would argue she deserved it. Incredible performance from Natalie Portman. Not a film for your amusement at all. Um, the next year, 2011, we were on a roll. Uh, we were here at this point. We had moved up to the Pacific Northwest. We went right up the road to see uh, David Fincher's adaptation of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo at Regal City Center, also falling apart. Um, man, again, if you've seen it, then you know that that movie loses most of the audience about an hour into its two-and-a-half-hour runtime. And sure enough, there were a few people in the theater who'd had enough, and up and out they went. Merry Christmas. Uh, there aren't... These aren't the kinds of movies that you enjoy in the traditional sense. They don't amuse you in any pleasant way, but by that definition, and I believe that definition is a good one, they are art. And again, I'm arguing that from the philosophy of art and aesthetics, yes, but more so I'm arguing from the scriptures. Now, for those of you familiar with the Bible, if I asked you to cite an example or two or three of the, author, the biblical author's use of art and aesthetics to communicate something beautiful and uplifting and redemptive. My guess is that we could come up with lots of those examples. Psalm 23 comes to mind, one of the greatest, most beautiful poems ever written. 
Um, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, a short work of fiction with an allegorical message so profound that it staggers the soul. Uh, John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth where every tear is wiped away by Jesus himself. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You don't have to really search for them. They're all over the story of the Bible. That's the kind of thing that American Protestants in particular love to translate into songs and paintings and wall art, victory, salvation, love, hope, all worthwhile topics for exploring with art. But is that the only kind of art and aesthetics used by God and the authors of the scriptures? And here's where things get really wild. Now, here's the thing. Even if we spent the entire teaching on this, the entire gathering on this, we couldn't possibly get into all the wild, obscene stuff in the Bible. So what I'm going to do is offer you some highlights just to make a point. But it'll be fun. You'll see. Stay with you guys all right? You stay with me? Okay, great. Yeah. Let's start with a few highlights from the Bible's depiction of history. In Genesis 19, a town of men, young and old, attempt to gang rape two visiting men who are actually angels. Uh, in chapter 34, Simeon and Levi trick a city of men into getting circumcised, and while they're recovering and still in pain, they invade and kill all of them. In chapter 40, Pharaoh decapitates his chief baker and impales his headless body on a stake so that birds can eat his flesh. In Numbers 25, Phineas manages to impale one guy and one lady on the same spear. It's a real marksman with the spear of this guy, um, which has also been depicted historically in art. Uh, in Judges 3, Ehud uh, then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God to you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew a sword from his right thigh, plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank, sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Later in the same chapter, a guy called Shamgar kills 600 people with an implement used to train cattle, an ox goad it's called. Uh, in chapter 4, a woman named Jael nails her husband's head to the ground with a giant tent peg. In Judges 19, this is one of the most horrifying stories in the whole Bible, a Levite is visiting a stranger, some evil men bang on the door, and again, they demand, like, just like in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that this visitor be handed over them to be gang-raped. And the Levite instead sends his concubine out into the crowd. She's literally gang-raped until sunrise when she finally collapses on her master's doorsteps, Doorstep, arms outstretched in despair and agony, and she dies from her injuries. The Levite finally gets around to checking on her when he wakes up. He comes out and just says, get up. And he finds her brutalized to the point of death. And then he proceeds to dismember her corpse and send the pieces out to the tribes of Israel, which instigates this war of vengeance so deadly that it nearly wipes out the tribe of Benjamin altogether. In 1 Samuel, David saws off Goliath's head and wears it on his belt as it rots in the sun. In 2 Kings, the king of Israel learns that a severe famine has compelled a woman to cook and eat her own son. And we'll stop there with the history because just a few excerpts from four, that's just from four books of the Old Testament are enough to rival some of our most extreme horror movies. But that's history, you might argue. We believe these things actually happen, and the Bible's just sort of being honest about these events. Is that really an artistic decision on God's point, on God's part? But 
The disturbing, violent imagery in the Bible goes well beyond cataloging historical events. God commanded ancient Israel to enact grotesque animal sacrifices and do things like sprinkle animal blood as a symbolic gesture of God purifying evil. Now, it's not like back then blood and death were sweet and wholesome, and we've just sort of changed as a society. Death has always been depicted in the scriptures as God's enemy. Even the sacrifice of an animal is a regrettable thing, and that's why the ritual was important. But God chooses and curates and commands these dark, somber, theatrical, aesthetic, symbolic gestures as a means of forming his people. When God wants to say something to Ezekiel about his faithfulness uh, uh, to Israel and about Israel's faithlessness, he does so with this kind of macabre, terrifying vision of piles of dead bodies rotted down to the bone, and then they lurch and shiver, and they're covered in these like glistening nerves and sinew and flesh, sort of death in reverse. And it symbolizes God bringing Israel out of the death of sin and exile and restoring even what was most lost to life once again. Now, you got to ask yourself, couldn't God just say that? Couldn't he just say something nice about saving Israel or give us a, a vision less horrifying or at least some kind of metaphorical comment that is some, not something out of a, out of a horror movie? Uh, if I were to somehow play a video of Ezekiel's vision during worship, it would freak everyone the heck out. But that's what God chose. Jer uh, Jesus used disturbing, gory images to communicate harsh warnings and to communicate redemptive promises. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if your eye causes you to lust, you should gouge it out of your head. If your hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. Um, he told parables about servants that get cut into pieces. Those are the severe warnings against sin. But then you get things like, you should eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's the promise of salvation through the visual of cannibalism. The Bible uses harsh, ugly, brutal images and stories to be honest about the ugliness of the world and as aesthetic decisions to promise hope and salvation because they are powerfully communicative and they resonate with the human soul. What about language? In Philippians, Paul confesses that everything he once imagined to his credit as a religious leader, he now understands to be scubalon, which your Bibles usually translate as something like uh, garbage or rubbish. Um, scubalon, compared to the unsurpassable value of knowing Jesus and being known by him. Now, that Greek word scubalon is often translated, like I said, as garbage. It literally means excrement. Some scholars argue that it has kind of a, an unwholesome tone to it, that it may have been accomplished to, uh, uh, it may have been comparable to our English word crap or even the S word. Second Samuel 20:30 documents Saul screaming at Jonathan what is often translated as you son of a perverse rebellious woman because that's how people insult one another. Um, the New Living Translation renders the insult you stupid son of a whore, the message you son of a slut and a footnote in the, these are all from different translations of the scriptures a footnote in the NET Bible explains a better approximation of the sentiment expressed here by the Hebrew phrase would be you stupid son of a B word that's right I don't use swear words that's a true thing and I believe that as a disciple of Jesus that's important but there they are in the scriptures now just as often as the Christian pop culture hive mind insists on a Christian art scrubbed clean of any imagery or language that might upset or offend, we somehow became convinced over time that art throughout Christianized 
of the Christianized canon has no room for darkness or despair either. No violence, no darkness, no bad words, no despair, which is weird because it's all through the scriptures. Poems about depression and doubt, about suicidal ideation, about utter hopelessness. God said, when these poets write these songs down, that's good, put it in the Bible. An entire book of the Hebrew wisdom literature uh, includes this recurring frame, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You are going to die, and you and everything you ever did or cared about will be wiped from the face of the earth, and no one is going to care. Nihilism in the Bible. And if you keep reading, you, you're waiting for the, just kidding, at the end of Ecclesiastes. It must show up somewhere. I mean, this is the Bible, but it never comes. Now, of course, if you read Ecclesiastes in the context of the entire story of the Bible, it occupies a unique, meaningful place. But God just trusts us to figure that out because God is an artist. What about sex? We know that the Bible doesn't shy away from documenting sex and sexual violence and debauchery, I mean, adultery and orgies and prostitution and rape and incest and pedophilia. But there's also an entire book of Hebrew love poetry called the Song of Songs filled with explicit depictions of romance and sexual desire. Uh, in fact, one Puritan commentator once wrote of Song of Songs, and I quote, the Jewish doctors advised their young people not to read it until they were 30 years old. <laughs> The book is so interestingly open-ended that it has inspired all kinds of ongoing debate as to why it's even in the Bible in the first place. But today, most scholars believe the Song of Songs stands in a long tradition of ancient romance poetry, and it's designed to reflect on and celebrate God's gift of sexual love between a husband and a wife, meaning the book isn't meant to be dismantled and dissected and stripped for academic parts, desperate to find some metaphor to justify why this would be in the Bible. Instead, it's meant to be be read as a unified work and just enjoyed. But it's hilarious to me that so many have been so desperate to impose on erotic poems some metaphor or analogy, unable to bear the idea that it just is what it is, but it gets into all really weird places. Just, just leave it alone. And yet, all throughout the Bible, God does insist on symbols. And somehow, a few thousand years ago, his people got scared of them. <laughs> Honestly, I could cite enough examples for an entire series on just this one topic of symbology in the Bible, but here's one of my favorites. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, God commands the prophet to enact a series of increasingly bizarre feats of what we might describe as street theater. So, for example, Ezekiel spends like more than a year lying on his side, tied up by rope, and God prepare or commands him to prepare food made over human feces and Ezekiel is like eh, gross don't make me do it so God's like fine use cow feces instead then Ezekiel cuts his hair with a sword and he burns it and he prepares like a scale model of Jerusalem and then he dramatizes an attack on the tiny city like he's Godzilla and no one no one is into it they walk by this guy everyone thinks he's a hack um, none of that was Ezekiel's idea God told him to do all of it. Each specific detail, actually. God commissions bizarre, offensive performance art. And, and please listen to me on this. God never expresses any concern for whether or not his art might be offensive or misunderstood. In fact, by the time you get to Ezekiel chapter 5, and this is incredible to me, after God's strange, distasteful performance parables that he commands through Ezekiel, we learn that God already realizes that the performances won't work. 
Israel is not going to take Ezekiel's symbolic warning seriously, and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But God commissions the performance art anyway. Apparently, the art itself, upsetting and offensive though it may be, has a value unto itself. But those crazy acts of street theater had the prophet there to explain them. He was like, hey, this is what this means. You need to repent. Sometimes God buries the symbolism even deeper. Are you guys still with me, by the way? Great. Okay. The next example is from a genealogy. A genealogy. You can believe this. As many of you know, the gospel of Matthew opens with uh, the family line of Jesus of Nazareth. There's so much going on in that thing, more than just a list of names. Here's just a few examples. So in verse 7, Matthew includes someone called Asa, and in verse 10, someone called Amon, both of whom were famously wicked kings of Israel. Now, in Greek, both names have been slightly altered. My, Matthew has added a single letter to turn Asa into Asaph, Asaph authored many of the Psalms, and he was a worship leader who, in particular, prophesied about a coming Messiah. And to the name Amon, Matthew has made a small edit by exchanging the last letter to the name so that it actually reads Amos in Greek. Amos was a Hebrew prophet. Now, I realize that that seems like a wild fan theory, but scholars actually agree that this subtle exchange of Greek letters is on purpose. Matthew is presenting a family tree that nods to Hebrew prophets of old to say that this Jesus, to whom Matthew's gospel is dedicated, is indeed the Messiah of Asaph's Psalms. Jesus is the same king that Amos foretold hundreds of years prior. And then, when Matthew summarizes Jesus' genealogy, he writes, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, if you're just reading this at face value, you're like, what the heck is up with the 14? This is an ancient literary device called a gematria in which numbers are assigned a symbolic value. So the Hebrew language doesn't have numbers, but each letter can double as a number. So imagine, for example, if in English, you know, the alphabet A doubled as one, B doubled as two, and so on. In Hebrew, the name of King David was made up of three Hebrew letters. So you've got Dalet, which was a numerical value of four, Vav, which was a numerical value of six, and Dalet again. Um, so for all you math enthusiasts, that brings the sum total of David's name to what? Fourteen. Fourteen is a symbolic number, number or gematria, um, for King David, which seems weird to you and me, but historians actually agree that Jewish readers would have seen that, which seems consistent enough. After all, David's name appears at both the beginning and the end of the genealogy, as well as in the middle of the list in which he appears as number 14. Matthew is telling his readers that Jesus is the long-awaited descendant of David the long-awaited Messiah and King, with numbers of all things. But listen, it goes on. I'm almost done. Matthew's, in Matthew's world, there was a famous prophecy featured in this Old Testament book called Daniel in which the exile of Israel was said to last for 70 sevens, or put another way, 70 weeks. You look at this from Daniel 9. 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up um, vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy 
place. So it's a messianic vision and a promise. Now, of course, the number seven features heavily throughout the Old Testament. As many of you know, I'm sure the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year. And every seven times seven years or 49 years was something called a year of jubilee in which slaves were granted freedom and all land was given back to its original owners. So in Daniel, we read about 77s, which is not a literal number per se. It's a symbolic number. And Daniel is saying that sometime in the distant future, a Messiah is going to come and end sin and wickedness and restore salvation and goodness and peace. This Messiah is going to end the exile forever. He's going to usher in, usher in an unprecedented era of freedom and healing and renewal. Now, of course, in the first century, which is the time of Matthew's writing, that prophecy was common knowledge. Matthew wrote to a primarily Jewish audience. They all knew about that prophecy. And one reason was that the Jewish people of the first century were 490 years removed from Daniel's prophecy, which is a more literal understanding of 77s. And Matthew knows that, and he's exploiting it. Matthew's saying to his Jewish readers, look, not only are we 490 years from Daniel's 77s, we're also three stages of 14 generations from Daniel's prophecy, or six sevens. Jesus's birth is the seventh seven. Matthew's using this incredible amount of numerical symbology to say something very simple. The greatest jubilee of all has finally arrived. The dawn of the long-awaited anointed one, the seventh seven is here. Now, don't check out just yet because this is, this is the one of the, uh, one more use of 14, arguably the best of all of them. If you add up the list of the last group of kings in Matthew's genealogy, you arrive at the mysterious sum of 13 instead of 14, which is weird. It seems like he dropped the ball and forgot about how to complete his own metaphor. So the reader wonders, oh man, Matthew contradicted himself. But if you look closer, the genealogy ends with this final entry. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Joseph is, some, for some reason, mentioned as the husband of Mary, which is weird. Why on earth that title? Every other patriarch and king is listed as the father of. So why not Joseph, the father of Jesus? You see where this is going? If Joseph isn't the father, who is the missing 14th king? Matthew doesn't say it outright, but he knows what he's hidden with illusions and symbols and foreshadowing. Oh, man. If Bible nerd or not, that's pretty freaking cool. Now, from the very beginning, with what appears as this ordinary lineage, a list of, it's just a list of names, Matthew, inspired by God's Spirit, is saying with numbers and symbols and subtle allusions back to the Old Testament, yes, Jesus is the promised king, and he's even more than we could have ever guessed. Now, honest question, non-rhetorical. Who in here picked up on all that just by reading that genealogy the first time you ever cracked open Matthew's gospel? No, no one. I know I didn't. Good grief. I didn't understand it the fifth time I read all this stuff myself. So why is it like that? Why this use of symbols and numbers and buried layers of illusions that we would have never found without help from people who devote their whole lives to studying this stuff? And yes, of course, Matthew's first century audience would have known more, but it's not like it would have jumped right off the page in every single layer. It's designed to be read and reread and studied because God is an artist. God is an artist who is willing to be candid and direct and beautiful and uplifting and redemptive, and he is willing to be abstract and opaque 
and offensive and bleak and honest and raw. The art on display throughout the scriptures, God's art is often lovely and encouraging, and it is often sordid and profane and violent or erotic. God is an artist. Okay, you guys still with me? Great, we're almost done. Now, what you have to understand about all that is what it says about God as an artist. Remember, we as Christians, with other Christians the world over for centuries, believe that the Bible was breathed out by God's Spirit. Now, by that, we mean that the Bible, yes, had many human authors, sure, but it also has one divine author. So, the Bible says what God wanted it to say. But the Bible tells the story of God, discloses to humanity the story of salvation, yes, but it is also, in and of itself, a work of art. And some of us have trouble with that verbiage because we hear the Bible's a work of art, and we can't help but think such a statement implies that it's also somehow not true, as if being a work of art means somehow less valid as a, an artifact of history or, or the story of salvation. It's a work of art and nothing else, or a work of art means that it's a fiction. And maybe it teaches us something meaningful, but no more than, you know, Homer's Iliad or The Cat in the Hat. It's, it's a book. It's a really old book. But that's not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God and the most incredible feat of literary artistry the world will ever know. Somehow, that guy did both. He's smart like that, being God and all. Go figure. The Bible says what God wanted it to say. So the brutal warfare, the wild cosmic symbolism, the gory metaphors, the erotic sex poems, the buried symbolism, the complex layers of meaning, the uplifting stuff, the pessimistic stuff, whether it's practical, like communicating history, or impractical, like emphasizing aesthetics over clarity, like poems and parables and symbols, all that is exactly how God wanted it. The Bible is one of the primary ways God makes himself known to us, the only inspired, authoritative way that we hear from God is in the Bible, which means, please listen, that God wants to, often prefers to, come near to us, speak to us, reveal his character and person to us through art. And the kind of art through which God wants to, often prefers to come near to us and speak to us and reveal his character and person to us can be bright and beautiful and straightforward and concise, and it can be dark and disturbing, offensive and obscene, ambiguous and abstract. Throughout the story of the Bible, God creates this kind of art himself, and he commands, commissions, and includes that kind of art from people. And God expects us, human beings, to meet him in that art. And all these wild stories and visions throughout the sacrifices and parables and poems, never does God provide a pause in the action to say, but hey, listen, if you're not the creative type, here's a different way of communicating that exact same thing. In fact, if you read the gospel story, several times Jesus' close friends and companions come to him and say, listen, your audience does not understand these parables. Or they say, do you not understand that you're offending people? And Jesus makes it clear that his creative decisions are on purpose. Jesus never says, oh my God, I had no idea. Next time I'll be clearer. 
I'll be less confrontational. What was I thinking? I'll come up with a less offensive metaphor next time I tell that same story. Instead, he tells them it's on purpose. I know exactly what I'm doing. And yet, we have somehow arrived in a season of Western Protestantism so deficient in the spiritual discipline of art appreciation that we demand our art, if we allow art at all beyond worship songs provided by one of two megachurch conglomerates, we demand that our art be sanitized, clarified, made safe and clean and clear for the Christian consumer. The Christian entertainment machine, whether cranking out you know, music or TV or film or wall art or whatever, seems to define Christian art as something scrubbed clean of anything that could possibly offend or be misunderstood, wholesome, uplifting, uplifting, rated G. We like our worship songs even, very happy. We want our kids protected from anything scary or upsetting. In essence, we do not want our art the way God often prefers it. Powerfully honest, confrontational, challenging, dangerous. So we are not teaching ourselves or our communities or our children how to look for God and find him in the kind of art that is confrontational, challenging, dangerous. When we make ourselves fragile with sensitivity and our fragility becomes contagious and we fall into the rhythm of the way things are simply done in our Christian cultural bubble. You can't sing that kind of thing at church, or you can't show that to Christians. Why? Uh, because you can't. It's not the way things are done. Back in uh, 2008, my friends and I had um, made up this concept record about a sex worker who, after being raped, seeks out an unsafe abortion. And at the story's conclusion, at the character's kind of lowest moment, she discovers the redeeming love of Jesus, lifts her out of the pit that her life has become, and saves her. But this is something that we made to be released and distributed by a record label that kind of operates in both the general and Christian markets, which is a weird thing that these exist, but they're industry terms. And there was immediate concern from Christian distributors. And I remember being on a phone call and a professional telling me, look, we'll, we'll never be able to sell this in a Christian market or play it on Christian radio stations. Now, this wasn't my first rodeo, so I figured that that was coming, but it was, it was always baffling and always discouraging. And I remember, this is one of my favorite examples, a performance, I believe it was in Kansas, and there was like a mega church youth group in attendance, which is fine. And it was on this tour where we were playing in front of this giant screen that projects visuals throughout the concert. And this giant flashing skull appears on the screen at one point in the set. And this panicked youth pastor was like, oh, he saw it and he started hurting up the, you know, the impressionable youth kids and, and ran them out of the room as fast as he could. He pulled the plug on the sound and the, the visuals and everything and got those poor defenseless high schoolers out of the venue. And that was weird. Uh, so afterward, I'm arguing with this guy and he's like, look, man, I'm sorry, but I had to protect my students. And I was like, from what? And he said, well, you know, there's like a skull on the screen. And I was like, what's wrong, what's wrong with skulls? You, you know you have one, right? Jesus had a skull. You know, God made these up. You, do, you understand, right? Would you rather not have one? What? <laughs> anyway, and if the mere visual of a skull strikes mortal terror into your soul, you are going to have a terrible thing with a time with this thing called the Bible, let me tell you. So... Okay, so what? Does that mean that anything goes? No one should ever object to any content whatsoever. That's not what I'm saying at all. And we'll get into discernment and conviction and how we practice the spiritual discipline of art appreciation starting next week. But for now, to end tonight, I want us to sit with this. 
Why do so many of us expect Christian art, if we think about it at all, to come in a certain shape and size and to avoid certain indiscretions? And here's an even better question. Are we prepared to meet God in art that's bright and beautiful and straightforward and concise and in art that's dark and disturbing, offensive, obscene, ambiguous, abstract? Or does a wall go up against the latter? Because both kinds of art surround us on all sides every single day. If you do not learn to practice the spiritual discipline of art appreciation, you will fail to meet God in one of his most preferred methods of making himself known to us, inevitably creating a deficiency in our spiritual maturity. To dishonor art is to dishonor God. He made it up. The first step in, in, in developing the spiritual discipline of art appreciation is the willingness to learn, to open our hearts and minds to seek God in art, and then to learn and mature in how best to meet him there. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to continue to grow and mature us as disciples of Jesus. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.